Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lisenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. How are you, Kristen? What's going on? Are you surviving the Januaries? Uh, You know, I am, but this is also the time I start to feel winter's weight. The sparkly lights are down, the decorations put away, and so, at least for me, the post-holiday letdown is a real thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, back to work. (laughs) Yes. I've been wintering hard, but I'm getting really excited to be with the Tamed Wild and Bulk Retreat crew in Asheville next week. And so, actually, this week, once this episode is released, but um, Kristen, we're going to miss you so much. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait to hear how it all goes. And also really looking forward to the days when international travel understands that I need to go to these Sabbath retreats, but I'll be there in spirit. Absolutely. Also, good news, Magic and Alchemy fam, I have a new microphone, so really sorry that mine quit during Riss's episode. However, our wonderful editor Julio says that we should be good to go. Yeah, and hopefully today's discussion makes up for it. Definitely. So what are we talking about this Mercury Day? We're finally going to talk Medusa and Athena's story today. Long overdue, I know this is an episode we've spoken about for a while, but we both wanted to wait and make sure we had enough time to get our thoughts in order, decide which theories to discuss, because there are so many, and just make sure that we honor these women and their stories today. Absolutely. Side note, um, I found my paper about Medusa from classical mythology class from undergrad at K College with a publication date of 2014. So shout out to 21-year-old Kate. Hope this episode also makes you proud. She's definitely proud. And like you, Kate, I adore Medusa. Mm -hmm. She's one of my favorite deities, archetypes, whatever you want to call her. And maybe that has something to do unconsciously with why I've been drawn to Athena since almost day one of my witchhood. Because, you know, according to some theories, Medusa and Athena are actually one and the same. This is actually not a perspective that I've heard before, so I'm super thrilled to have a new lens here. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. But before we begin, there are several articles on Magic and Alchemy, the blog, about Medusa, also Athena, Perseus, Pegasus, Gorgons, all of whom play important roles in Medusa's life. So if any of our listeners want more info about them or just kind of a general refresher, just go to the blog and in the search bar type in Medusa or any of the names I just mentioned. The Gorgons one um, from Kristen is new as of last week, so make sure you check that one out. Also, before we dive in here, 
we did want to give a little content label. So the story of Medusa and Athena does contain elements of sexual assault. And so if right now isn't the right moment for you to join in this conversation, we wanted to give you a heads up and a moment to turn the episode off and send you lots of lots of love. start at the beginning. Medusa was born to the sea gods Phorcus and Keto. She was the youngest of three daughters, all of whom began life like so many other divine children, beautiful and radiant. In fact, they were so beautiful that it wasn't long before Medusa caught Poseidon's eye. What happens next is up for interpretation and will depend on if you read the earlier or later tales, but Either Medusa and Poseidon had a consensual relationship, or he took her against her will. But either way, Medusa conceived her and Poseidon's twins while in Athena's temple. Which, of course, angered Athena. Poseidon was Athena's enemy, always fighting over territory. But he was also sometimes her rumored secret love. Although, as a virgin goddess, she could never act on those feelings. Which is maybe why, instead of punishing Poseidon, Athena cursed not only Medusa, but her two sisters, turning all three beautiful maidens into hideous, winged, snake-haired monsters, better known as Gorgons. I always thought that virginal in these myths was like more of a suggestion, like more about sovereignty and autonomy than actual sexual purity. So it could maybe play a role in that. Absolutely. And I think in Athena's case, her, quote, virginity might also be a way for her to show her alliance with the solar gods, but more on that later. Mm. Obviously, Medusa and her sisters were devastated by this transformation. They removed themselves from society and relocated to a secret island where they lived in caves, far from curious mortals and meddlesome gods. But Athena wasn't finished with Medusa, and so she called on her fellow Olympians to help her locate the Gorgon sisters. Perseus, the son of Zeus and Danae, was tasked with killing Medusa and delivering her head. Hermes gifted Perseus his winged sandals, Hades his helmet which rendered the wearer invisible, Medusa her mirrored shield, and also a magical sword which was the only weapon that could kill a Gorgon. Perseus then tricked the Grey Sisters, who were three old women who could see everything, also sisters to the Gorgons, into telling him the exact whereabouts of Medusa. Because two of the three Gorgon sisters were immortal, and Medusa was not, Perseus was successful. He snuck into the Gorgon's cave while everyone was sleeping, beheaded Medusa, put her head in a magical pouch, and then headed back to Mount Olympus to deliver her head, which Medusa attaches to her breastplate and wears with pride. From what I read on the Met's website, and more on that later, the pouch is called a kibisis, which I don't know if I'm saying that right, but seemed like a very cool word. Um, And on his travels, he then used the head uh, to rescue the princess Andromeda from a sea monster, which sounds like another amazing story to dive into, Mm -hmm. before then giving it to Athena, like you mentioned. 
Yeah. And so from a very superficial standpoint, Mm -hmm. it's easy to hate Athena, right? Um, It's a heartbreaking story. Athena is the obvious villain, Medusa the victim. But if we know anything about mythology, we know to never take anything at face value. In Mysteries of the Dark Moon by Demetra George, which is one of my favorite books, by the way, The author explains that the Greek Medusa and Athena are actually the same deity, reimagined from Anatha, the Libyan triple goddess born from the sea. And she's also known as Neith in the Egyptian pantheon, if anyone is curious. So Athena, Metis, who is Medusa's mother, and Medusa can be seen as the three aspects of Anatha— Together, they mirror the maiden, mother, crone, or the new, full, and dark phases of the moon. Obsessed. I've never, I've never heard of this perspective. Yes. Shout out to Demetra George and her theories on the dark goddesses because I am also obsessed. So originally, Anatha was this great mother. She was both wisdom and strength, warrior, dark goddess, maiden, all rolled into one. But in Greek myth, that's where we see this archetype broken apart. Anatha becomes three goddesses, and instead of working together, they're now enemies. We could get really deep here and talk about all the wars and conquering going on um, in the world at that time. But the main thing to keep in mind is that there was a big societal shift happening with the patriarchy dominating and suppressing the matriarchy. Mm. So... Once we understand this bit of history, it's easy to see why Athena, as a patriarchal goddess, was represented as the hero, and Medusa, the matriarchal, scary, snake-haired gorgon who must be stopped by any means necessary. One of the things I find really interesting has to do with the gorgon's head. While the gorgon image is generally talked about um, as a face so hideous it will turn you to stone— Before then, it represented the moon. Hmm. In Libya, Anatha's priestesses wore gorgon masks during ritual to evoke the goddess. This was perhaps partly to protect the identities of the priestesses, but also to show that when they wore the gorgon mask, the goddess was moving through them. We need to see the gorgon masks. (laughs) I agree. And gorgon imagery is super visible in architecture, but... I'm still searching for a Gorgon mask. I'm sort of inspired to make my own. And we have to make them when I visit the Azores. Definitely. But I also love the concept of Medusa as our shadow side, the unconscious, and potentially a mirror, which Medusa as a mirror is something I saw a lot in my research. There's an excerpt in Mysteries of the Dark Moon of a poem called The Muse as Medusa, by May Sarton. And I just wanted to share it because it really illustrates that theory. The poem is much longer, but this part reads, I saw you once, Medusa, we were alone. I looked you straight in the cold eye, cold. I was not punished, was not turned to stone. How to believe the legends I am told. I turned your face around, It is my face. That frozen rage is what I must explore. 
O secret, self-enclosed, and ravaged place, this is the gift I thank Medusa for. Since we decided to work on this episode about Medusa and Athena, I've been thinking a lot about Medusa's depiction in art, writing, and poetry, much like the piece that you just shared. Traditionally, I have more experience with Athena as someone that I felt disconnected from, but with this new retelling that you've shared, I'm going to do a deeper dive into that, and I think that there's a lot to be learned from her wisdom. That being said, I've also been very inspired by female rage lately. I love that the poem mentioned rage. And Mm -hmm. so my research for today followed more along the depictions of Medusa. And I think that there's a lot of magic to be made inside of rage. And the experience of sacred rage is something that I feel like women, quote unquote, good girls, people pleasers, often get severed from. Side note, any listeners watching Yellow Jackets wanting to talk about rage, please, please send me a message. (laughs) But, um... Through some of the most difficult periods of my life, I've seen Medusa as a guardian and called on her as a patron saint and protector. And like we were texting about earlier, Kristen, I'm not alone in this. The depictions of Medusa in art have ranged from Ovid to Versace to Neri Oxman. According to the Heilbrunn timeline of art history, in an essay published by Madeline Glennon, Medusa in Ancient Greek Art, Just as Medusa exists in multiple types of stories in the mythological record, she was also portrayed in multiple ways in ancient art. Her appearance changes drastically through the centuries, but is always recognizable due to her striking frontality. It is rare in Greek art for a figure to face directly out, but in almost all representations of Medusa, despite style and medium, She stares ahead and uncompromisingly confronts the viewer, which I love. Mm She is seen through many lenses from seduction to rebirth to survivor and survive she has. Her story has impacted artists for centuries. In the words of Gianni Versace, seduction, sense of history, classicism, you stay with me or no, that's it. Medusa means seduction a dangerous attraction. And then, of course, Donatella. In mythology, the Medusa can petrify people with a look, which is a good thing, I think. One of the last New York City adventures I had pre-pandemic was to the MoMA with my friend Barack, and we went to go see the Neri Oxman show. And her work was just so cool, but she has a series called Imaginary Beings, Mythologies of the Not Yet which is also such an incredible name. But in this show, she creates these wild 3D-printed, wearable Medusa heads. So I'll have to add a link to that in the show notes. They are stunning. The statue of Medusa holding the head of Perseus was also adopted as a symbol for the Me Too movement. So in an article in the New York Times um, by Julia Jacobs, it's titled, How a Medusa Sculpture from a Decade Ago Became Hashtag Me Too Art, Jacob writes that Medusa with the head of Perseus was reimagined as a symbol of triumph for victims of sexual assault. 
when it was unveiled in Lower Manhattan, just across the street from the criminal courthouse on Center Street. Medusa would stand across from the building where the men accused of sexual assault during this movement were prosecuted, including Harvey Weinstein. This piece of art was designed by Luciano Garbati, and the artist stated that the myth of Athena and Medusa, like you mentioned by some accounts, Kristen, communicated to women for millennia that if they were raped, it is their fault. And so many then viewed this image as catharsis, and Mr. Garbati said in an interview that by now his sculpture had an independence from him, a life of its own created by outsiders' interpretations. He said in quotes, I would say that I am honored by the fact that the sculpture has been chosen as a symbol. And he noted how the whole project itself had helped him realize that he was a product of patriarchal society. He said that this piece of art was in direct response to Cellini's sculpture, which depicts the story of Perseus slaying Medusa and then using her head as a weapon, harnessing her power and turning people to stone. He says, in quotes, destabilizing the narrative as told through a patriarchal lens is really where the power of the work lies. And this is one of my favorite parts about retelling myths or re-examining them. And Medusa seems to be such a powerful figure for the retelling, the investigation, the more than just meets the stony stare. And to me, she is a character of rebirth. There is the poem Medusa by Sylvia Plath, beautiful, frightening, The Head of Medusa by Diane Seuss, two amazing poems that I will also link in the show notes, but um, Paul Salon and Helene Sissou, two other amazing poets um, who I studied at school, have these beautiful quotes about Medusa. You only have to look at Medusa straight on to see her, and she's not deadly, she's beautiful, and she's laughing. And that's from Helene Sissou and from Paul Salon. Who knows, perhaps poetry travels this route, also the route of art, for the sake of such a breath turn. Perhaps it will succeed, as the strange, I mean the abyss and the Medusa's head, the abyss and the automatons, seem to lie in one direction. In her death, she continues to inspire, to fiercely show up despite her beheading. Chrysor, the giant, and Pegasus, born from her blood where Perseus beheaded her, Joseph Campbell writes, Pegasus, poetry, was born of Medusa when her head was cut off. And in some legends, the snakes live on as well. They slither away from her head to go and live on and remember their story and where they came from. I like to think that the snakes of today could perhaps trace their ancestry back to the head of Medusa. Medusa came to me for the first time around the time which I learned about the Duende, a term I know I've talked about before. But for those unfamiliar, the duende originates as a trickster character in folklore, but is also a term to explain soul, depth, the dark or shadow piece of an art or creation. And so in his lecture, The Theory and Play of Duende, Lorca describes duende as the duende, where is the duende? Through the empty archway, a wind of the spirit enters, blowing insistently over the heads of the dead, in search of new landscapes and unknown accents, a wind with the odor of a child's saliva, crushed grass and Medusa's veil, announcing the endless baptism of freshly created things. And the veil of Medusa, the veil between this and that, stone and knot, 
victim or monster, symbol of seduction or survivor, she teaches us that the truth is not always what meets the eye. And in this otherness, there is a reclamation, much like with the word witch. In Medusa's gaze, she takes back the power that was taken from her, and in those moments where she was frozen in stone, her own agency stripped away, she returns to meet the moment. In the same piece published for the Met that I spoke about earlier, and I quote, even though Medusa's appearance changes drastically through the archaic, classical, and Hellenistic periods, from a grotesque creature to a beautiful female, her otherness remains. The legends of the Gorgons cast them as foreign others living outside of the known Greek world and horrific beings to be feared and ultimately vanquished. Archaic depictions are monstrous and inexplicable. The Gorgon seems to be both male and female, both human and animal. The 6th century BC antifixes, bronze handles, and vase decorations all depict a creature that is as terrible as it is distinctive. Classical and Hellenistic images of Medusa are more human, but she retains a sense of the unknown through specific supernatural details, such as wings and snakes. These later images may have lost the gaping mouth, sharp teeth, and beard, but they preserve the most striking quality of the Gorgon, the piercing and unflinching outward gaze. Beautiful. Shall we end with a poem? Let's do it. So this is called Athena to Medusa by Nikita Gill, and it's from her book, Great Goddesses, which I've been carrying around with me the past couple of weeks. I'll make you a trade, your beauty for stone, your sea-beloved tresses for venom-filled snakes, your innocent doe eyes for frigid gaze. The sea is in the habit of ravishing what does not belong to him without taking for consideration. But sweet girl, I promise you, I will not allow this to be your ruin. You were sacred, one of my own. And no cruel chaos will devour you again. Choose terror over maiden, relinquish your human. And I will turn you into a goddess in your own right, a deity of monsters, a myth that will scare men for all the years and all their seasons. And so it is. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Tune into next week's episode where we talk Witchcraft 101, Part 2. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. Mm-hmm.